0: This season is made possible with the generous support of the Kimmel Shatsky Traumatic Brain Injury Innovation Fund. Hello and welcome to another episode of Injury Is Not Equal. I'm your host, Shaylin, from the Center for Injury Prevention at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. We're on a mission to uncover the truths and realities about injury risk and impact. We're laying everything on the table as we engage in critical conversation And hopes to change the narrative and raise awareness about health inequity and injury. We hope you'll join us. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Traumatic brain injury can result in cognitive, emotional, and behavioral symptoms such as memory impairment, poor judgment issues with anger management, inappropriate emotional response, and engagement with high-risk behaviors. These symptoms and impairments can increase an individual's risk of interaction with police and involvement with the justice system. In fact, evidence indicates that individuals who have sustained a traumatic brain injury are about two and a half times more likely to be incarcerated than individuals without a TBI. Studies have also indicated that the majority of incarcerated participants report having a TBI before their first criminal offense. In this episode, I am joined by researcher Dr. Flora Matheson to impact the widely unknown and complex intersection between TBI and the criminal justice system.
1: So for people with brain injury, their reactions in social situations, slow processing of information, heightened emotions, and stressful social encounters can lead to misconceptions on the part of the police, probation pool, and correctional officers. So what I mean by misconceptions is that the behavior can be viewed as the person being non-compliant or defiant. Research suggests that if people aren't aware of the symptoms of brain injury, if they aren't trained on approaches to support people with brain injury and approaches to de-escalation, then they can misinterpret behavior as defiance or aggressiveness for its own sake. So we need to create awareness of TBI and its symptoms within criminal justice professionals.
0: That was Dr. Flora Matheson. Dr. Matheson leads the Justice and Equity Lab located at MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions, St. Michael's Hospital. As a sociologist, her research is focused on solutions to reduce social and health inequities among people experiencing problems gambling and imprisonment. Solutions that are built with and for these communities. As a sociologist, she uses a gender lens and social determinants of health approach to enact change. In one of her recent studies, she discovered that individuals in Ontario with a history of traumatic brain injury are 2.5 times more likely to be incarcerated. We asked Flora why we see such a strong connection between TBI and the justice system.
1: So a couple of pieces I wanna touch on here. Um, First are the symptoms related to the injury itself. For example, there are cognitive communication symptoms of head injury, so these can make it difficult for people in social interactions, especially potentially stressful criminal justice interactions. So if we really think about the symptoms of TBI, some of these include impaired memory, impaired attention, distractibility, difficulty following instructions, difficulty with reasoning. There are also behavioral symptoms that that bring people into contact with the criminal justice system. So some people with TBI have verbal outbursts, outbursts, they have physical outbursts, they have poor judgment and disinhibition. We know that interactions with the police and frontline workers, probation and parole officers, and formal proceedings like bail hearings and court trials often involve complex social interactions and typically require high level and fast paced processing of information, understanding and responding. This isn't always possible for people with traumatic brain injury, depending on the nature of the the injury. So we ask how much might these symptoms translate into greater risk of involvement with the criminal justice system? So let me give you an example. Let's say someone with a brain injury has an encounter with the police and the person is viewed as rude or aggressive. This may escalate the person police interaction and end with a charge. So we're trying to understand these pathways to criminal justice involvement related to the symptoms of traumatic brain injury. Then if we think about interactions with probation parole correctional officers, there could be misinterpretation of behaviors related to difficulty following rules and routines and missed or late appointments. So we know from our research in the prison system that people with TBI are 14 times more likely to incur serious in-person disciplinary charges these charges can affect the time spent in custody rather than in the community. We also know that people with TBI versus those without are twice as likely to be reincarcerated. So, pretty dire statistics there.
0: Wow, individuals with a TBI are twice as likely to be reincarcerated. Those are staggering statistics indeed, and definitely makes me wonder what more could be done to support these individuals as they reintegrate into the community. According to Brain Injury Canada, traumatic brain injury currently falls under the definition of mental disorder within the criminal code. Although TBI can have significant effects on mental health, traumatic brain injury is not a mental disorder. We discussed in our previous episode about the complex intersection between TBI and mental health and the importance of acknowledging and supporting both the TBI and mental health condition for optimum recovery and rehabilitation. We wanted to know more about this connection with mental health and the role it plays in a TBI survivor's involvement with the criminal justice system.
1: We know that traumatic brain injury is part of a constellation of health and social needs among the population. So think about mental illness, substance use, other other disabilities, poverty and homelessness. We also know that TBI history is associated with increased risk of incarceration, re-arrest and re-incarceration, and these are related to some of the issues we just talked about. So let me give you some numbers. You can see how stag- staggering the situation is. Rates of TBI range from 36 to 88%. Substance use sits around 70 to 80%. Mental illness is about 30%. And approximately 50% of people who are cycling into the prison system are homeless both before and after incarceration. So we have a lot of people in our prisons and jails that need medical care. And I would say intensive medical care. These concerns are connected in, in really complex ways, and it's really tough to know what causes what, but I'm I'm not so concerned about that. Do we really need to know what causes what? We should be looking at ways to support people so they don't become entangled in the criminal justice system. We know that jails and prisons break people down and destroy self-esteem. So we're contributing to trauma and making people more ill and more unlikely to be successful when they re-enter the community. I'll also add that we don't have enough services to meet the needs of our community members, any of us. We need more funding for affordable and supportive housing. We need more funding for mental health and substance use for traumatic brain injury, and the list goes on to ensure that services are accessible and to remove the lengthy wait list.
0: So we heard Flora touch on many factors such as substance use and homelessness that also play a significant role in one's involvement with the justice system. As Flora shared, approximately 50% of individuals entering the prison system experience homelessness both before and after incarceration. To add to that, approximately 50% of individuals experiencing homelessness in Canada have a history of brain injury. In addition, plenty of research and evidence is available to speak to the connection between substance use, mental health disorders, and homelessness. As you can see, there are many connections between these individual factors that layer on top of one another and significantly increase an individual's risk of involvement with the criminal justice system and risk for reincarceration. There are many other identity and system factors that also come into play. Recent statistics indicate that there is an overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous individuals in correctional facilities in Canada. These communities continue to face many intersecting challenges, such as systemic racism, community and intergenerational trauma, and socioeconomic marginalization that significantly impact injury experience and care. How do we begin to understand the overrepresentation and the impact it has on these communities? And from your perspective, where are the opportunities to disrupt this pattern?
1: Yes, the statistics regarding over-incarceration are quite distressing. Uh, Indigenous people represent 4.1% of the general population of Canada, Uh, yet Indigenous women represent 40% of women in the correctional facilities. Indigenous men represent 30% of all men in custody. Black communities represent 3.5% of the Canadian population, but 9.5% of the prison population. Black men account for 15% of male admissions and black women account for 8% of female admissions in custody. So it's quite concerning. We also know that black people in Canada are subject to heightened police surveillance. They're more likely to be stopped and questioned, charged, severely sentenced and incarcerated, and are less likely to be granted parole relative to the general population. Indigenous individuals who are arrested are often denied bail, spend more time in pretrial detention, and spend less time with their lawyers and if convicted, are more likely to be incarcerated. You asked about why there is such an over-representation. I think we have to look to the history of colonialism to understand the situation, to systemic racism, to cultural stereotypes. There's a historical intergenerational trauma. Um, such over-incarceration disrupts families emotionally, economically, and creates more trauma and more intergenerational imprisonment. Um, In terms of disrupting the patterns, well, we could do away with prisons altogether. Um, We could find alternatives to incarceration. We could arrest fewer people, use diversion to the health or mental health system or to drug treatment courts or mental health courts. We could ensure that people have the basic income, access to affordable and supportive housing, access to education and family support. So there's so many ways uh, that we could be changing things and so many things we could be doing uh, with the money spent on incarceration. It, according to the correctional investigator, this is staggering too, costs 190,000 to incarcerate one person in prison each year. I think of what that would do for housing supports. So this is uh, much greater than what it would cost to provide housing for each of these people. And it's a big cultural shift, a huge cultural shift to end systemic racism, eradicate negative stereotypes and to come to an understanding that locking people cells doesn't support healthy
0: outcomes. There's kind of that ripple effect as well that you were talking about. Um, You said the disruption to families as well. Um, It makes me think that, you know, there's, there's a much larger impact. And I can only imagine how, you know, one individual in the family who's experiencing involvement with the criminal justice system, how that then ripples down and affects family members as well and the other individuals within their community too. So it has a really large impact.
1: It does, and if we think about, you know, if 40% of the women in the prison system are Indigenous, what is that doing to the families, to the children of those individuals that are incarcerated? And how is that affecting familial relationships? And how is that affecting poverty in those families? So we are doing a disservice by over-incarcerating people and really, really ripping families apart.
0: The effects of colonialism and systemic racism on Indigenous and Black communities has caused intergenerational trauma that has resulted in poorer mental health, higher substance use, lower socioeconomic status, and increased violence. All of these are factors that contribute to risk of traumatic brain injury, as well as involvement with the justice system. As Flora alluded to, there are so many ways we can work to disrupt this pattern of overrepresentation in correctional facilities in Canada. Evidence indicates that the number of individuals under court-mandated supervision, such as probation and parole, exceeds the number of individuals in custody in correctional facilities in Canada. Can you expand on what some of these supervision conditions entail and the challenges or disparities it presents for individuals with a traumatic brain injury?
1: Sure. So um, there's a fairly long list of conditions that can be mandated at bail or under probation or parole. It's quite long. And there can be multiple conditions applied to a single person. So let me give you a couple of examples of conditions that can be challenging for people with traumatic brain injury. So most, if not all people under conditions have reporting requirements. And what I mean by that is that they need to report to their probation or parole officer, maybe weekly or weekly. If someone has a traumatic brain injury and struggles with memory, there's a pretty high chance that they may miss some of their appointments. Depending on the officer, this could mean a breach of a condition, and that can lead to a revocation of their parole or probation and a return to custody. Well, that's one example. The other often used condition is to abstain from purchasing, possessing, consuming alcohol and or drugs. Now, we talked earlier that you know about 80% of the people in the criminal justice system or those incarcerated a substance use disorder and there's a high correlation between traumatic brain injury and substance use so often people under conditions are mandated to uh, maintain their abstinence from use of alcohol and drugs they're often mandated to do urinalysis testing and if they're positive on the test then this again is a breach and can uh, result in return to custody
0: Wow. I can definitely see that being challenging. Um, just those two examples that you mentioned being very challenging for um, an individual with a traumatic brain injury, for sure. Even just the, the reporting requirements alone for those with effects to memory um, and cognition, that can be extremely challenging. And to think if we're not being supportive of the fact that that individual has these cognitive impairments, and so you know, one breach of that condition can result in them returning. to custody, that's that's really challenging for an individual who doesn't have those supports available to help them through that and maintaining those requirements, especially that connection with substance use as well. That's a huge challenge, especially when we look at that statistic that about 80% are also dealing with a substance use disorder. And we know that connection with a traumatic brain injury. That's extremely challenging. And again, I, I think to as well, like where are the supports then to support someone to maintain this requirement through that period? Cause it's very easy to fall back into that substance use when we don't have we don't have the supports there to help with that.
1: It also depends too on the probation or parole officer and how much leniency they will give to people. I I know some probation parole officers who will actually go out and find their clients if they've missed appointments in the streets if they they know that they are uh, underhoused because one they don't want to have to write them up and two because they are concerned if they've missed an appointment so it really just depends on that relationship between the officer and the person and how closely the officer aligns with rules rather than giving some leniency to someone when we may all make mistakes right so there is that piece, too. And I think this, this is where the education comes in as well, is to come back and, and provide education and help people understand what are the things that are going to make it difficult for people under conditions to comply with those conditions. And there are so many conditions. So even trying to understand the conditions and ensuring that you know how to comply with them is a, is a big thing. It would be for me, as a person coming out of a court with a whole range of maybe ten or twelve conditions to follow, I would be overwhelmed, and I'm sure that if you have memory issues, if you have processing issues, then you're going to be even more more overwhelmed and may not even understand some of the conditions, which makes it even more problematic.
0: Absolutely, I'm. I agree with you. I'm sure even myself I'd be extremely overwhelmed, and you know I I need to have everything written down in front of me, and I'd need to have a schedule of reminders and things like that, and and I'm not dealing with cognitive impairments from a traumatic brain injury. So I can only imagine how much more challenging that is for for those individuals. And I was just about to say as, as you were speaking that I wonder how many of these parole officers are aware that many of these individuals potentially have traumatic brain injuries and the effects of that. And so when you speak to some are a little bit more lenient than others and might go a little bit out of their way to, to follow up um, with an individual when they haven't um, met one of these conditions or requirements to kind of give them maybe that second chance or opportunity. But I'm sure there's others out there that are a little bit more stricter with those conditions and might not offer them that second chance or opportunity and aren't considering what else might be going on with this individual. And that's where that education piece really comes in. Is there any are, is there any work being done to educate parole officers on you know the big piece of TBI being very prevalent within this population?
1: So I work with a group of community partners and a network, and there's many, many of them are providing training to police officers, to probation parole officers. We've also provided some training through the human services and justice coordinating committees which is a network of uh, across Ontario that coordinates services for people uh, who are, are criminalized. And so we are we are working towards that and trying to create that that Avenue where we can really help people understand that some of the people they are seeing have very chronic health conditions that are affecting their entry into the system and adverse outcomes in the system. And then comes outcomes when they come back into the community.
0: So, education is one factor that can play a huge role in an individual's ability to successfully meet court mandated conditions and reintegrate into community. Remember our discussion with Lynn Hogg in episode three, part one of our episode series on intimate partner violence and TBI? Lynn spoke similarly about the importance of educating first responders and frontline workers on symptoms of traumatic brain injury, the prevalence among certain groups, and how best to recognize and support these individuals. How do other identity and system factors affect someone's ability to meet some of these conditions that we're talking about?
1: So identity plays a role in all our social interactions, we can conceptualize people based on preconceived ideas of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be homeless. And these notions can determine if we think that someone will succeed in meeting their conditions and how much they're under surveillance or how much leniency is allowed. So this is why education for people in the criminal justice system about traumatic brain injury, mental illness, substance use, homelessness is so important to enable an understanding that our prisons and jails are filled with people with chronic and debilitating health conditions, and to build options that support success in the community as alternatives to pr- imprisonment.
0: Definitely, there are many factors that play a role, and each individual has their own factors and different intersecting identity and system factors that play a role in their ability to to meet these different conditions. And I like that you touched on as well that some of these also play a role in how much leniency there might be provided for different individuals. And that kind of makes me think back to our other question when we were talking about indigenous and black communities and their overrepresentation within um, correctional facilities and how, you know, systemic racism and, and bias comes into play with certain populations or groups and individuals um, within within the criminal justice system as well. As part of your research and work in the area of TBI and the justice system, I understand you are currently in the process of developing a mobile app with the goal of supporting individuals as they transition from prison back into the community. Can you share with our listeners your vision for how this app will support this population and how it will address various identity and system factors that affect the reintegration process?
1: My team works very closely with a large network of partners who understand the repercussions of criminalizing people, of incarceration, and of TBI in the context of the criminal justice system. So with them, we're thinking about a combination smartphone web-based app that will help people manage these conditions, this whole host of conditions that we talked about. We're also thinking about a paper-based tool that goes along with the technology, like a survivor card or health passport for, for people who don't access to technology. So we want to create a tool, set of tools that can support people in a variety of ways, memory aids, social support, screening tools, navigation tools, communication tools, and self-management tools. But what the final set of tools will look like will be a collaborative effort with the partners and with people with histories of traumatic brain injury and lived experience of being under conditions. And our hope is to build this set to address a set of tools to address shared challenges related to TBI. So not necessarily looking at specific groups, but looking at the shared challenges around those conditions of release as it relates to traumatic brain injury. We're also hoping that whatever we build, if we build it with the understanding that people with traumatic brain injury, that it will will work for everyone so we just want to be sensitive to those with traumatic brain injury, but we hope that it is a tool that can be uh, that can facilitate help for everyone. So the focus is on challenges of, con- of TBI within the context of conditions. If we can help people so they don't breach conditions, we aren't really affecting the system, Not, and I don't feel the app can specifically affect the system because it is for the individual, but we are supporting supporting the, the individual affected by the system. And I think that's important to do.
0: There does need to be some kind of supportive tool, just like something like this, that that can help these individuals through this process. And I'm really happy to hear that, you know, you've you've thought of ways for this app to be able to meet the needs of many different individuals. Um, So when we talk about there being a combination of smartphone, as well as web based, and also a paper based as well, because that was also something I was thinking of when we talked about many of the individuals, um, potentially experiencing homelessness, they may not have access to smartphones or, or web based technology. So having other alternatives to still be able to use these, these tools as well to support them. So I think that's fantastic um, work that you and your team are doing
1: we'll see how we do we're really really focused on trying to build something and right now we're in the midst of collecting data for a study where we're talking to people who have histories of traumatic brain injury and have experienced conditions and we're also talking to people in the criminal justice system that enforce set and monitor conditions so we're hoping that will also feed into the the wealth of knowledge from lived experience of people who will be working with us on the the app project and from the network of partners.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Matheson, for such a great discussion on this very important and complex intersection between traumatic brain injury and the criminal justice system. Stay tuned for next month's episode, where I sit down with guest speaker Judy Gargaro, who discusses the intersecting factors that influence risk and outcome of traumatic brain injury in older adults.
1: The reality is one size can't fit all. And sort of we, we have a saying in the brain injury world, when you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury and, and I think, you know, this sort of applies here is that culturally what, how people want to age and interact with their community and the activities they want to do, and even how they conceive of aging and conceive of health is really strongly dictated by culture.
0: Be sure to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at let's talk injury. We encourage you to give our podcast a follow so you can be updated when new episodes are released. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.